Father, it's with humble hearts that we would bow before you now. As we open our Bibles, we expect to receive from you a strengthening word, a convicting word, an encouraging word. Father, we do long for our lives and the reality of our living to match up with the intention of our words in our minds this morning, that we would indeed love you more than even silver or gold, that we would follow after our fairest Lord Jesus above all else. And yet, Father, we recognize this morning the idolatrous nature of our hearts and the ease with which we are seduced taken and intoxicated by the things of this world that are so much lesser than what you would have for us. So forgive us, cleanse us. Thank you for the shed blood of Christ that washes us clean. We commit ourselves, Lord, now to the hearing of the word and to the doing of it. We'll count on your Holy Spirit to use this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to what I would consider one of the most important passages in all of the Bible, and that's Genesis chapter 3. We've been in a series in the book of Genesis for some months. We've had some interruption due to my vacation and Matt White being here last week. We return now to Genesis, and in Genesis chapter 3, we find just one of the most incredible stories When we stop and think about it, and as we look at it, I think you'll agree with me that this is such an important passage of Scripture. You say, Pastor Van, isn't all of the Bible important? Well, yes, indeed it is. But you might think of the Bible as some kind of a lockbox or a safe. And I think you would admit with me that the Bible's not always easy to understand, is it? And if the Bible were a lockbox, then Genesis chapter 3 is the key and the latch mechanism with which if we can get the key and unlock the latch, we can open up the strong box, the rest of the Bible will become clear. If you don't get Genesis chapter 3, you're not going to understand God's redemptive plan and His story of the, that culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The very reason that God put on flesh, became a man in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead, The Son of God is because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. So it's such an incredibly important passage. And in fact, we're going to have multiple messages from Genesis chapter 3. There's some very practical lessons there. There's also some very important, significant foundational theology that we're going to need to spend some time looking at. Namely, the doctrine of sin. What is that all about? And God's answer to it. So it's so important in that aspect. But you also need to recognize that it's a very emotional passage of Scripture. We're going to read the text in just a minute, and then we'll break it down. But I want you to think in terms of this passage and the story where we are. We've spent some weeks in Genesis chapter 1, creation, Genesis chapter 2. We've taken the references in other parts of the Bible, and we've looked at a, at a, a cultural Um, social series as when the Word of God and the world collide and how often issues like uh, in our world today, like homosexuality, for example, are actually addressed in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and so forth. And we've taken time to do that. And so now it's time to move on, and we move into this important passage of Genesis chapter 3. And you'll see as we read how emotional it is. It is this kind of emotion. 
It's as though we've been at a great wedding feast. We've had the wedding, beautiful bride and groom. It's been a sacred ceremony. The Lord Jesus Christ has been honored. It's been so good to be there. There's been great joy. The bride and the groom love each other deeply. We've feasted well at the at the reception, and we've mingled, and we've enjoyed the fellowship and the company. We've hugged the bride and the groom, and and we've thrown rice, and we've bid them farewell out the door, and off they go for their honeymoon. And all is well, and what a great time it is in the lives of this bride and groom. And then, down the road, as they head to the beach for their honeymoon, in a wonderful time away, A big Mack cement truck leaves its lane, hits them head-on that afternoon following the wedding, and the bride is killed, and the groom is maimed. And that which started out in the day so beautifully, and that which was so well put together, kabam! Everything is different from then on, and it is disastrous. That's what happens today in our text. Oh, we've been seeing the beauty of the garden. The joy of this man and this woman coming together. And even in the cool of the evening, by inference, evidently it was a regular practice, as you'll see. God himself, either either in some type of a physical pre-incarnate theophany, Christophany, a pre-incarnate form of Christ, would come in the garden and would walk with Adam and Eve and fellowship with them. Can you imagine what that was like? Perhaps some Bible students think it might have been a, a kind of a Shekinah glory where he came in some, like in the um, time of the wilderness and the children of Israel in the wilderness with Moses and the presence of the Lord was there in the form of, of the Shekinah glory or the fire or the cloud. I tend to think it was some kind of a personified form. And it was a beautiful time. But then everything turns tragic. And it breaks down with the introduction of sin. We have time this morning to explore it a little bit and to reacclimate ourselves with the passage and to understand what's happening here. Will you open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 2, please? And we're going to read for our text this morning. Genesis chapter 2, we'll begin with verse 8. In Genesis chapter 2, cutting into the creation story to remind ourselves what has happened and the context in which... Our story takes place today, and we'll just read through Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, okay? I use the New International Version. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. Genesis chapter 2, begin with verse 8. We'll read it uh, through 3.13. Follow along carefully. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, there were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Strange names, aren't they? Verse 10, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of the Havilah, where there is gold. Parenthetically, verse 12, the gold of that land is good. Aromatic, resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It it winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. 
Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place where the f- with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, Whoa, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than all of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. What an incredible passage of Scripture. There's a tremendous amount of information there, and there's a tremendous amount of detail that through the weeks ahead we will unfold. And I think you'll see that there's just uh, uh, some great important truths here that we need to spend time discussing. This morning, for the minutes that we have remaining, so that you know where we're going to go, let me uh, just tell you up front, let's first of all take a minute and let's look at the setting of this passage, the scene or the setting of this passage. Then, number two, let's take a look at the serpent. What was he all about? 
Number three, let's look at the sin. And number four, we'll end with a look at the sorrow. Okay? The setting, the serpent, the sin, and then the sorrow. Let's begin and help ourselves with an understanding of this passage by looking at the setting. First of all, we read in chapter 2, verse 15, and I think it's it's notable this Labor Day weekend that verse 15 of chapter 2 says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Interesting, isn't it? Even before sin entered the world, that God put man to work. Work is honorable, isn't it? And so... Uh, I guess this Labor Day weekend, congratulations, all you workers out there, um, for a job well done for another year. And uh, enjoy the picnic and relaxing for one day before you go back to work Tuesday morning. But we're in the Garden of Eden, aren't we? This is the setting. It's the Garden of Eden. And uh, a lot of people have a lot of questions about this. What was this place like? We have dimensions given to us here as far as geographical landmarks with the identifying characteristics of four rivers. But let me ask you this question right up. What happens in Genesis chapter 6? Do you remember? There's going to be a great universal or worldwide flood. And so we'll not bog down in trying to figure out, well, where was this garden and what was it really like? Because we have just read just about all the real information that we have given to us. We know from God's creative work in the first six days, don't we, that as God created the the earth, and then put it all together, created the animals, and created man, what did God say repeatedly throughout the six days of creation? Remember? The end of the day, and he looked at his handiwork, it was good. And so I would expect that though there are two rivers named here, the Euphrates and the Tigris, and many Bible students uh, seem to uh, believe that this Garden of Eden was probably in what is today present-day Iraq, which those two rivers are still part of that, that at that time, pre-flood, that this was a beautiful world. We can only imagine from the creative story, the story of creation, what a utopian state in which Adam and Eve lived, eh? Beautiful. And they had all of this vegetation with which to eat. They had fruits, they had nuts, they had the seeds, and they enjoyed, I'm sure, very good food. And so we have here in the, in the Garden uh, of Eden, which some speculate may have been as large as like 6,000 square miles of area. And they had this whole area. Here's the setting. We also know that in the story there's two trees. The tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life in the middle of the garden. Isn't that interesting? This huge setting. And isn't it interesting that in the story, with this vast, beautiful area and God's great provision for them, where are we going to find Adam and Eve? Did you notice in the story that it says Adam was with her? We don't know the exact timeline when the serpent spoke to Eve, which we'll look at in just a minute. Evidently, Eve was standing right next to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I take it to to be a literal tree. We're in the context of literal creation. We'll talk more about that in just a minute when we examine the serpent briefly. But whether Adam was standing at her side or whether she took the fruit and then took it to him and showed him, ate it, gave it to him, and he ate it, he was with her. 
We don't know 100% for sure if Adam heard what the serpent said and was just silent, or if Eve was the one that had the dialogue alone. We just, we know what we read. But we read enough, don't we, to understand what's happening. And so here we are in this beautiful utopian setting. You can only imagine, probably some kind of a tropical paradise. What a great place. And the beauty of the relationship that the man had with his wife no clothes even necessary, no shame, nothing to hide, nothing to come between them. And then as the Lord walked with them in the cool of the evening, also characteristic of just intimate relationship, nothing as a barrier between them and their relationship with their Lord. And then we get to chapter 3, and we're introduced to the serpent. And notice, isn't it interesting, in chapter 3, verse 1, we don't have an introduction, we don't have any other context than what is written. There's no explanation, but Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he recorded the history of mankind and records the history of the fall of man from innocence into guilt and sinful accountability for the rest of mankind, the history of mankind, he just abruptly changes gears. Notice 24 and 25, 23, the beautiful recognition of Adam that God has created from his own flesh the perfect counterpart and the two fit together beautifully. And in all of his maleness, Adam appreciated this marvelous female. And as a male and a female come together, what a beautiful thing it is and what a completion it was. And they're to leave, even the mandate for marriage and the establishment of the home as we've looked at is there. And the man and his wife were both naked, verse 25, And they felt no shame. And then we go to verse 1 of chapter 3, and look what happens. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman. Now, isn't that interesting? We're just to take it as it comes. The Bible doesn't defend the story. The Bible just presents it. doesn't give us some of the questions that pop to our mind. So there's the setting. Now let's look at the serpent. Because it's with the introduction of the serpent that the whole thing gets a little weird, isn't it? It's like, come on, Pastor Van. That's kind of like a mythological kind of story, isn't it? I wonder if the serpent even was a fire-breathing dragon, and this is the maiden in distress, and and Adam kind of missed his role as the warrior who was supposed to come rescue her. I mean, that's the stuff of fairy tales, and that's the stuff of mythology, of all cultures, of all eons of time, and many storybooks are based on, right? Here's evil, and here's good, and here's innocence, and listen to me closely. As we look at the serpent, we don't have a good explanation for him. Artists have often conceived, and you can maybe picture in your mind's eye, here's the tree and the the big gobs of grapes or whatever hanging on it, and this serpent wrapped around the trunk and out onto the branch, you know, wrapped around, and then his head comes down and his forked tongue, yes, did God really say... You can picture it however you want, but evidently, and the, the serpent at this point did not look like a snake as we know it today. Because we're going to find out later when we do a further study on the results or consequence of sin that even the animal kingdom was impacted by it, and particularly the serpent, evidently had legs or wings removed from it and was 
condemned to slither on its belly and to have man trying to crush its head, don't you love to kill snakes? And crawl in the dust and the dirt? So we don't know what it looked like. And the word crafty in Hebrew there actually has, uh, is a play on words with the word naked in the verse above. Evidently they rhyme the two words. We'll talk more about that when we talk further about the the doctrine of sin in this passage. We know from Revelation chapter 12, and we'll not take time to turn there, we know from Revelation 20 that John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, clearly identified the serpent as Satan. My conclusion, as we think about questions that could arise about this serpent, is that it was evidently Satan embodied himself in this animal, this serpent, and whether Eve in her naivety didn't know that animals couldn't talk or what, I don't know. We have other illustrations in scripture, don't we, where God uses animals. In this situation, Satan is using an animal. Remember the, um, the story in the Old Testament where the, the prophet was compromising himself and riding on his donkey and was to condemn Israel for money, and the donkey turns his head and speaks, right, Balaam, Right? And, and it talks. Did that really happen? Absolutely. He literally heard a voice come from his donkey. No doubt about it. And so as we look at this passage, listen to me closely. Because it is the trend of our day, even in quote-unquote evangelical circles, to begin to question this passage of Scripture and to say, you know... I'm not so sure this is a literal reality that took place. I think that this is probably just a spiritualization of the condition of mankind. It's some kind of a, a historical, ancient story that, that compares good and evil and shows us why we need a Savior. Listen to me, if Adam and Eve are not real people in Genesis chapter 3, then when we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Romans, then Jesus is not a real person. You cannot make Adam and Eve into mythological characters and be consistent and not make Jesus a mythological character in the New Testament because as it was in Adam, and Jesus taught and Paul taught, that as in Adam all die, and he was a real person, and because of his behavior there was real consequence that the second Adam, Jesus Christ himself, came to be the substitute for our sin and to die on the cross in our place that we can have the forgiveness of sin and enter in his grace. Praise God. Don't play with the text. Right here in the middle of this marvelous story where there's a real world with real trees and real birds and real water and real people, why all of a sudden would there be an imaginary story? It doesn't make any sense at all. Don't let that happen. What about those trees, you say? Tree of knowledge of good and evil? I take them to be real fruit trees of some kind. There to create a contrast. There for the context of choice. We'll talk more about that later on. And I know there's other questions, and you want to, we will try to discuss it. You want to come back for more. But if God knew everything, and God knew they were going to eat the fruit from that tree, why did he put the tree there to begin with? Well, if it wasn't a real tree, what would it have mattered? And so we'll keep talking about that a little bit. But so there we have the setting, the utopian state of the Garden of Eden. We have the serpent. I believe uh, uh, this animal, uh, clever, it, that meant it is a, a shrewd kind of animal, some kind of an advanced 
animal. It's, uh, not necessarily, it was still an animal form. And Eve has this dialogue. And the serpent leads her into this conversation of compromise. Let's look at the sin. What's really going on here? We're going to break it down more in a future message, even as we deal with the very practical aspect of temptation. And in that message, we will look word for word exactly what the serpent said and exactly what Eve's response was and what was going on in her thinking as she is seduced into making a sinful choice. But we've read the text. We know the story quite well. Let's look at the sin that took place. Because it's easy to look at the text, isn't it, and say, you know, it was their first mistake. And she was seduced. So what's the big deal? And what's the big deal of going up to the tree, picking a little fruit, and nibbling on these little grapes or whatever they are, pomegranates or papayas, whatever it was. We don't know. What's the big deal? Well, I would like to suggest that there are four reasons, even at a superficial reading of the text, there are four reasons why this is such a serious matter. Let's take a look at it. What's really going on here? Why is it a big deal? Number one, listen closely, because it was a direct act of disobedience against the Word of God. It was an act of direct disobedience against the Word of God. Listen, He was their loving Creator. They were the creature living out His will, and they crossed over the line of His instruction. They don't know what's going on. They don't know the big picture. They don't know that Lucifer's been cast from heaven. They don't know that they're vulnerable to the evil one. They don't know that within themselves there was evidently the capacity to to lust after things that were outside the will of God. They don't know any of that. They're innocent, in a sense. They're naive. And all they had to do to maintain God's blessing was simply do what he said. I remember my sister was 17 years old. My dad whipped her, spanked her. He said, 17-year-old girl, senior in high school, and your dad spanked her? Yeah, he did. I'm not recommending that necessarily. Uh, You know... 10 years old, I spank him, but my dad had bought a new Oldsmobile. It was a 1965 four-door. Those big old heavy square cornered ones, man, weighed a ton. He had parked it in the garage, and we were getting together, the rest of the family, to go to, we lived in South Chicago. We were going to drive on I-94 around the bottom of Lake Michigan and go up near Kalamazoo, Michigan, to Christie Lake Bible Camp. That's where we poured all of our resources, two hours away in southern Michigan at the Bible Camp where my dad was on the board. The last thing my dad said before we left home, and my sister worked at a nursing home south side of Chicago, just a couple miles over and a few blocks down the road and over. And dad said... Dawn, do not drive that car. Well, guess what she did? She drove it to work. We got home late at night, and my dad, putting some things away in the garage, walked past the front of that Oldsmobile and could feel the engine heat. He knew it had been driven. He knew immediately what happened. My sister, instead of taking the bus, having her driver's license, thinking we were two hours away in Michigan, going to drive that car to work and be a grown-up. My dad went upstairs to his room, took his belt off, and he spanked the fire out of that girl. She was so mad. I think she hated him at that point. I think today in her 50s, she knows that she really violated the standard of the word of her father. You see, though there was a license plate on the back of that Oldsmobile, there was no insurance on that car. 
How liable would my father have been if my sister had killed somebody? Or been in a bad, tragic wreck? It could have easily happened. She did not know the whole picture, did she? She did not know that my father had her best interest in mind and that wasn't the day to drive that car. But no, she directly disobeyed his word. Boy, we're good at that, aren't we? And there it is. Secondly, notice in chapter 2, back in chapter 2, verse 16, that it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from... What's the next word in the NIV? Free to eat from any tree in the garden. Any tree. But what what does Eve want to do, and what does Adam allow to go down? There are only two trees. There were probably... There's an undeterminable amount of vegetation from which they could eat in that garden. And they could go on and on and on and eat. And there are two trees, and where are they? Standing right next to the forbidden fruit. We're good at that too, aren't we? Secondly, I want you to see that not only was this sin huge in the eyes of God because it was an act of direct disobedience to His Word, but number two, it demonstrated dissatisfaction with God's plan and provision for their life. This is like spitting in your dad's eye. This is like the family that's held hostage by their four-year-old. Do you want to go to McDonald's? No. Do you want to go to Burger King? No, I hate Burger King. Well, let's go to Wendy's, honey. No. Let's go to Taco Bell. No. Well, what do you want? I don't, I'm hungry. And they're bouncing all over. Provide for them. Go to the parenting class. They'll tell you what to do. (laughs) But this is God saying, there you go, Adam and Eve. There's the garden. Here it is. Enjoy. Enjoy it to its fullest. That tree and that tree, leave alone, enjoy it all. And they're saying, you know, I'm just not satisfied with my father's provision. Think about what a, what a slam that is. Think about what that says about the pride of their own heart. You mean you gave me all of this and I can't eat from this? Meh. Disobedience, dissatisfaction. Number three, it was also a disregard for the very character of God, wasn't it? Is God all-knowing? Is God all-wise? Is God all-loving? Does God always have our best interest in mind? Absolutely. And so when they crossed that line and ate that forbidden fruit, thirdly what they were doing is they were, they had, they were showing their disregard for the very character of God. That's like saying, you're not for real. That's one of the things Satan did that we'll talk about. The ser- Satan, Satan, speaking through the serpent, gets Eve to question, did God really say? But he knows that if you do it, you'll be like him. He's holding back on you. Did you ever think of that? Oh, oh. If I, hey, I'm really missing out here. And it's, a, and it's a slam against the very character and heart of God. I designed you. I created you. I put you in this context. Trust me. And to go eat it says, I don't trust your character. Fourthly, it was a radical departure from the order and design created by God. A radical departure from God's design. 
This really hit me when I was looking at this passage. I don't know if I've ever thought of this before, but think about this. Here's what happened in the story. Satan enters the serpent, speaks to the woman, who speaks to the man, okay? So the the woman listens to the serpent, the man listens to the woman, and nobody listens to God. That's not how God created the order to be. It was supposed to be God speaks, and he did. The man listens, the wife submits to the man, and nobody listens to Satan. And they reversed it, didn't they? They put the very word of Satan above the word of God. Can you see how serious this really was in God's eyes? It's amazing, isn't it? A direct act of disobedience, a dissatisfaction with his provision, a disregard for the very character of God and his heart, and a departure from his order and his design. How serious this is. Let's wrap up. Point four, the sin. Point three was the sin. Point four is the sorrow. We've seen the setting, beautiful Garden of Eden, enter the serpent. Then we see the seriousness of the sin. And now we have the sorrow that always results. Notice what it says in verse 7 of chapter 3. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. I would suggest that verse 8 is the saddest verse in all of the scripture. You got the picture? God's marvelous provision the man and the woman, in all of the beauty of the male-female relationship, all of the fellowship with God himself, the disobedience for this bite of juicy fruit. And now, they're in the garden, hiding from God. Something wrong with that picture, isn't there? They go from complete innocence to this overwhelming guilt and shame. Secondly, in verse 8, we also see that they immediately have violated or broken the beauty of the relationship with God himself. And ultimately, according to chapter 2, verse 17, do you remember what God said? If you eat of the fruit, this is what's going to happen. One word, what is it? Death. But did you see what God does? You know, we don't end on a horribly sad note here. I want you to listen closely in our closing out minutes here. There's Adam and Eve trying to take leaves and cover themselves, hiding behind the bushes in the, in the garden. And then at the cool of the day, at their evidently a normal time when they would have expected him to come, otherwise why would they have hidden if they didn't expect him to come? Adam... Eve, Adam, Eve, let me ask you a question. Do you think that God didn't know where they were? Folks, do we not have a beautiful picture of the grace of God? Why weren't they struck dead at the moment they put the fruit in their mouths and swallowed it? The grace of God. 
We have a picture of God himself coming to the garden, knowing that he's been violated, knowing that his standards are violated, knowing that the age of innocence is over, knowing that sin has entered the picture, knowing that man is spit in his eye and hiding from him now. And he says, Adam, Eve, come. I want to fellowship with you. We're going to recognize there's extreme consequence to sin. We're going to see what God did about it, and that's the story of the rest of the Bible. But can I talk to you as we close out? We're just like Adam and Eve, aren't we? The thief, the adulterer, the liar. What are we doing? We're spitting in the eyes of God, aren't we? We're saying, God, I don't really trust you to meet my needs. I'm going to steal. God, I don't really trust you that you have my best interest in mind in this marriage. I'm going to go lay down with this woman over here. God, you really have forgotten me. And off we go in hardness of heart. And the wages of sin is death. But how come you're not dead, sinner? Because of the grace of God. And just like he came to the garden that night, Adam, Eve, he's here today, isn't he? Billy, Gary, Timmy, Miriam, Pastor Van, come to me. I have a way of releasing you from this guilt. Let's jump right to the end of the story. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through what? Through the Lord Jesus Christ, his Son. But God commendeth his love toward us in that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did he have a right to zap us the moment we sinned? The moment we were born into sin? Yes. But by his grace, he's holding back his wrath. Is there a consequence to sin? Yes, and some of you have felt it hugely. The guilt, the tragedy, the alimony payments. There's always a consequence to sin, and we'll talk about it in more detail. But this morning, have you come to Christ? He's calling out to you. Don't you hear him? In your sinful state, come to Christ, would you? Just as you are. He wanted Adam and Eve to get up from behind that bush and come to him. And begin the process of restoration of that relationship. And this morning, we know the end of the story, what a privileged people we are. And though we're born in trespasses and sins and characterized by wicked hearts, he'll forgive you your sin today, sinner. Do you know the cleansing power of the blood of Christ in your life? Let's bow in prayer. Before I close in prayer... Let me keep talking to anybody who might be here in a, in a position knowing that you're outside of Christ and you've violated his standards, you've spit in his eye. Today, won't you get up from hiding behind that bush, running from God, and come to him. And through the shed blood of Christ, find the cleansing from sin that you long for. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but while you have life and breath yet today, my friend, though you walk in spiritual darkness, you can find newness of life in Christ. Through his shed blood, Jesus Christ took your place at the cross. He was your substitute, and you can take as a free gift that work at the cross, have your sin forgiven, and now, in the cool of the evening, your heavenly Father comes to walk with you, 
robed in the righteousness of Christ, you can get up and go walk with him. He doesn't see you as the sinful person you were. He sees you forgiven and in Christ. Maybe today is the day you should be saved. August 31st, 2008. Why don't you cry out to God and say something like this, Father, today I recognize that I was in Adam. I was just like him and Eve. And I, though you've provided for me, I've sinned against you. Father, today I recognize that Jesus Christ took my place, washed away my sin with his blood, and I accept his work at the cross for me. And by faith I accept it. Will you tell God that in your own mind and heart and be forgiven today? We're going to sing a hymn in a moment. Why don't you get out of your chair and come forward? And today, mark it down on the calendar. That's the day I got out of my chair, walked forward, and I'm going to go pray in a side room with a counselor, and I'm going to make sure once and for all the blood of Christ cleanses me from all sin. And I'm no longer some crazy, raven, naked sinner. I'm clothed in the beautiful robes of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sin. Do that today, my friend. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that though you had a right and though it was written down in the law that they would die when they ate the fruit, that you somehow in your marvelous, sovereign, mysterious grace held back your hand of wrath. And you do the same today for us. And so teach us from this great story and help us to recognize, Father, that we are sinners condemned to die, but that Jesus Christ took our place carrying our guilt and our sin at the cross, and that today we can have the burden of our sin roll away. Please move in hearts, challenge thinking, bring people into your fold today. In Jesus' name I pray.